Jason. Uh, my wife, Amanda, we have two children, Kenley and Isaiah. Kenley's three, Isaiah's one. Um, I grew up in West Virginia. I was born in South Carolina, grew up in West Virginia. Um, my wife is from Texas, and so we met on a short-term trip to the Amazon in 2009, married in 2010, and we've spent the last three years living and serving in Mozambique. Um, Mozambique is on the eastern coast of Africa. Um, it's bordered by Tanzania, Malawi, Zimbabwe, and Z- uh, Zambia. And, yeah, so we've been there for about three years. Now, Mozambique is a very big country. And so where we live, we live up on the border of Tanzania on the coast in a small town called Mosimbla de Praia, which literally means situated by the sea. And so we live in a place that's right on the ocean. It's beautiful. It's very hot, but it's a beautiful place. Um, we're very blessed uh, to be there. Now, if you were to drive from where we live to the southern part of Mozambique, it's the same distance as driving from Maine to Miami. And so Mozambique is basically the entire length of the east coast of the United States. So it's a very big country. It's a very poor and broken country. Um, it was torn by war for over 40 years, whether that was the revolutionary and then the civil war that followed just a few short years afterwards. And so it's a very poor and broken country. It's in uh, the midst of recovering from wars. Um, Many of the people, a large portion, live on less than $2 a day. Um, So it's a very impoverished country. Um, There's not a lot of of hope as far as government's help and government support. Um, The people are majority farmers, but then the people we work with are fishermen. Um, They're called the Mwani people. The Mwani people. Can you say Mwani? Mwani. Mwani people. Okay? And so they are a Muslim people group. Um, they are Muslim by name. They are very, um, they identify very much with their culture, however. And so at their heart, there's still a lot of animism, a lot of worship of spirit, a lot of uh, practice of witchcraft and things like that. And so... Uh, Islam is the name that they carry, and they're very loyal to their family and to their culture. And so the the idea of, of one leaving that culture and stepping into Christianity following Christ is it's a very big obstacle. And so I'll say our work is very, very slow. <laughs> we've been there for about three years, and um, we've seen some fruit, but it's just very, very slow. We we don't have the stories of thousands of people coming to Christ, um, you know, with, with one-time sharing. For us, we do a lot of chronological Bible study. And so what we do with the Monty people is we start in Genesis, and we work through the entire Bible just telling them story after story. And what we do is we focus on the blood sacrifice and the promised one who is the Son. And so as we share, for instance, in Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve and how Adam and Eve disobeyed God and how they were naked and they were unashamed. They had nothing to hide before God. And then they sinned. And the moment they sinned, they began to realize that they they were naked. And so what they did was they took leaves. We know the story. They took leaves and they covered themselves. Now, this is the first religious act that we see in Scripture. It's people trying to do what they can to cover their shame, to make themselves presentable before God. It started with them. It did not start with God. It started with them doing something to appease God. And we all know that that's not doable. And so we start there, 
And then as we work into Adam and Eve and the, the idea of the punishment and God promising through the seed of Eve a promised one who is going to come, who is going to bring hope, who is going to deliver, who is going to be that ultimate blood sacrifice. And so as we work through the Old Testament, they hear story after story of the blood sacrifice. They hear story after story of this promised one who is to come. And so they're, they're waiting and they get excited as they wait. And then when we make it to the New Testament and John the Baptist baptizing, and he says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. In the moment that they hear that, because we're using the promised one the whole time, the moment that they hear that, it's like a light goes off in their head. This is the one. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And see, they're an Old Testament community. They're an Old Testament culture. And what I mean by that is the Moani people very much live under a law. It's not necessarily the Old Testament law that we know, but they live under a law. And what that is is that women have to dress a certain way. They do Ramadan, which means um, for one month out of the year, they fast for the entire month. They fast from sunrise to sunset. And for the more devout, that means they can't even swallow their spit. If they swallow their spit, then that means they have broken their fast. And they cannot gain favor with God that year. And so for them, it's all about their works. It's all about what they can do to make themselves presentable before God. What they can do to have favor with God. And so as we work through the Old Testament, we do a lot of trying to present to them the idea that there's just nothing that we as humans can do to have favor with God. There's nothing that I can offer God of my own. It's something that God has done and offered and given to me. And so, like I said, we work through chronological Bible story, and we do that in different ways. My wife, she meets with a group of women, and she takes fingernail paints. And she paints each of their fingernails, and each week, each color represents a different part of the story. And so she meets with these women, she paints their fingernails, and as she's painting their fingernails, she tells them stories from Scripture. And it's just amazing how much these, these people are interested in hearing these stories. They speak Portuguese, which is the, the trade language of Mozambique, but then Kimwani is their, uh, their mother tongue. And so we're now working on learning Kimwani, which is very slowly, processing it. We learned Portuguese first, and now we're working on Kimwani. Um, but we're, we're working on telling these stories and translating these stories from Portuguese to Kimwani. And then we're recording these stories on small devices that they can then have and listen to over and over again and then distribute out to others in the community who are not coming to hear the stories. Um, like I said, it's, it's a big deal for one of them to come and participate in these studies. When they know... Um, when people in the community find out that they're coming to participate in these stories, it's, it's a big deal. We have uh, a man named, we call him Mike, and um, about a year and a half, almost two years ago now, Mike um, made a profession of faith. He decided to give his life to Christ. Anyway, it was an amazing time. Mike's wife left him just two weeks later. She divorced him, ended her career, and she didn't call it back. And so Mike continues to follow. He continues to seek. He continues to follow Christ. But he's leaving everything in order to do this. And so the commitment when one's 
steps out of Islam, no one steps out of this darkness that they've lived in for so long and steps into light. It's a beautiful thing that they leave a lot. And so because of that, we have several men who have made confessions of faith who are really struggling with the decision of baptism now. Because we know that baptism doesn't save, but it is a step of us identifying truly with Christ, us relating to Christ completely. And so we're making that public profession with what we do. And so these men are very fearful of making this decision. And so I would ask Mike and Sam, our two men who are really struggling with that decision. And so I just ask that you would be remember Mike and Sam as you pray, that you would pray for them to have the faith and the courage to, to make that decision. Um, I'm going to tell you a, a few more stories about some people that we have, the Lord has blessed us by, by meeting. I'm going to start by telling you a story of a guy named Dave. Okay? Dave is, um, man, he's a, he's a rough guy, but he's a wonderful guy now. Uh, he, Dave uh, came to our house about two years ago, a year and a half ago, and he was uh, intoxicated. And he came to our house and he uh, began offering to sell us little trinkets, the little pieces of yarn with a, a string on them. And you put them on your children to protect them from evil spirits. Okay? And so he brought these to my house, and he was like, listen, my son's sick. I need help. Can you buy some of these? Can you buy some of these bracelets so that I can get him medicine? And so I was not interested in buying, but I gave him some work to do around the house and helped him help his, with his son. And um, Dave began coming back to our house every day. Every day he came to our house. For two weeks he came to our house every single day. And he just said, can you tell me the story again? And he came for two weeks. And um, after about two or three months, Dave made a decision to follow Christ. Now, Dave's wife, um, Ava, she was a witch doctor in the community. And so she was, that was where they received all of their income. People came to her when they needed any kind of traditional help. And she would come up with some some sort of item to protect their children or something to help them feel better. And they would buy it from her. And so uh, Eve, Ava, she, um, that's, that's what she did. Now, Dave made a profession of faith, and then shortly after, Dave led his wife to make a profession of faith. And so as we began discipling and studying with them and teaching them how to share your testimony, Ava one day shared her testimony with us, and she said, you know, the day that I prayed to receive Christ, I went into my house, and I took out all the things that I was using to practice witchcraft, and I burned them, because I knew that there was no longer, I was no longer allowed to practice those things. Now, we had nothing to do with that. I had no idea at this point that Ava was even a witch doctor. She hadn't shared that with us. We found this out almost six months later when we're sharing the testimony. Because God had so strongly worked in her life and convicted her of what she was doing, that she left it all behind. Her well, their well-being, I mean, it was like her job. She left it all behind in order to follow Christ. She left it all in order to follow Christ. Dave and Ava have since been baptized. And Dave and Ava are continuing the work while we're away. Dave is traveling to different villages, continuing to share the story. Ava is continuing to meet with the women to do the funeral arrangements while we're gone. 
think there are two people who the Lord has sent from from an extreme darkness and brought them into light and has allowed them to begin using it, using these tools to tell other people about the hope that they have in Christ. And so it's a beautiful thing. It's a very exciting thing. But I just want you to hear what these men and women are going through in order to make this step into life. What the Lord is doing in their hearts. It's a radical thing when the Lord begins to call someone out of darkness and into light. Now, we all know that each one of us, when we made that profession of faith, the faith to follow Christ, we also gave up Christ. We became we were crucified and so our flesh and our desires began to take, you know, the back seat. But it's just so interesting to see these men and women who are stepping out and being the first in their community to do that because they're not, it's not like the community is expecting them. They're ostracized. People do not accept their decision. And so, um, Dave and Ava, Mike and Sam, I shared a little bit about Mike. These two men continue to, to struggle as they've made their professions of faith, but we have leaders from the mosque that come to our house and go to the gym continuously, um, trying to convince them to return to Islam. And so these are, these are two men who have counted the cost and have made the decision, but yet they are um, still very much, uh, very much struggling from the pressure of Islam and the pressure of people pushing back and trying to get them to return to Islam. The, the, the leaders of the mosque always say that until someone's baptized, they're free going. And so what that means is that they can make a profession of faith, but until they're baptized, they're really not truly following Christ. Now, I don't believe that to be true. That's the way that they view it in the community. And so they're doing everything they can to try to prevent these men from doing so. Because in their eyes, they want to be baptized means that they are no longer identifying themselves at all with the community, at all with the culture, at all with Islam, and they are completely identifying themselves with Christ. So baptism is a very big deal for the Lord. Um, and so it's been a, a struggle with these men and they really, really struggling to last stories I'm going to tell you is about a guy we call Job. Um, Job is also a, a, a man who we met through teaching English. We teach English as a second language in our community as a way of building relationships with the people. And so we, we were teaching English and Job started coming to our classes. Now Job is a young guy. He's 22, 23 years old. Um, he moved away and moved up to, to where we are in order to work. His parents live about four hours south of us. And um, Job um, immediately took interest. And so Job began coming to our house, and I gave him a Bible. And he would read large portions of Scripture and just show up at my house with any question that he had found as he read through Scripture. And it was just so exciting to see someone who was just coming and saying, Listen, I read the book of Matthew yesterday, and I had questions. And, and he would literally have 20 or more questions about what he had read personally in the text. I mean, it was amazing. I wasn't doing anything. I was just helping him understand what he was reading. And um, and as he got to Acts, he, he came one day and he said, look, Pastor Dale, I read yesterday about the Ethiopian eunuch, and uh, I just want you to know that just have patience with me. I'm reading, but I don't always understand. Can you just kind of help me understand just like, you know, just like it was in the story? And he said, 
he just continued to walk through and um, Guava was really struggling with his commitment and his decision to follow Christ because of his father. And so Guava asked me one day, he said, can you go with me to meet my father? Can you travel down and meet him? And can you tell him what he's talking about? Because maybe he'll, he'll make a decision to follow, to follow Christ. And so he traveled down to meet his father and he shared with his father. His father was very accepting, very open. And um, he did not make a decision, but he told Guava Job, he said, Job, it's your life. If you want to follow Christ, I'm going to have to accept that. Which was so contrary to what we had heard from anyone else in the community, you know, in the culture. And so he um, he said, I'm going to I'm going to support you no matter what you choose to do. And so Job made a decision to follow Christ. And Job continued to study and Job himself brought up baptism with him. He said, when can I be baptized? And he said, so, you know, I was like, man, you, you tell me when you want to do it. And that day, it began, it, the rainy season had started, and so it was pouring in rain. And out in front of our house, we had this, you know, huge area that just fills up with water. And um, our cars can't pass it until when it fills up. And so he, um, he said, well, where's the water? What's stopping me from being baptized right now? And I was like, what? You know, and so anyway, it was just one of those things where the Lord had worked so much in So Job turns terrified, and he's like, you know, maybe not. And I was like, listen, Job, I'll go in first, you know, and just let me go in. And I'm walking in. I'm terrified myself. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know. But it's okay. We're going to do this. And so we get in, and Job starts walking behind me. And we get to, you know, about five years from now. I'm like, this is amazing. So <laughs> we just knelt down there, and um, Job, uh, Job gets baptized that day. Now, Job is 22, 23, like I said. still waiting. We're, we baptized Job about oh, two or three days before we left to come down here. And so those, both of those men have told us that they're ready. Now we're praying that we're going to go back and we're, we're going to be ready. But, um, but man, it was just so encouraging to see the way that Christ can just come into a community and give people courage. And I heard today, you're desperate. And I, I desire, you know that. Seeing the courage of these these men, and we know that that's all brought on by the Holy Spirit and 
while they were working in Iraq and Afghanistan. But, um, but anyway, like I said, I'm telling you the, the victory stories right now. There are plenty of other stories that, um, you know, things are not happening exactly how we had hoped. And like I said, normal people are close to 250,000 people. darkest times of my life, but the Lord used it for an incredible, um, incredible thing. Um, my wife was pregnant with our son Isaiah, and um, she, um, she, I had taken her, and we live about five hours away from the airport, and so um, the grocery store, so that's where we go and stock up and do all of our grocery shopping, and then we have to fly over country, that's where we go. So we had traveled down, and I had dropped her off. She had to go on down to South Africa to give birth. There's not good medical care where we are, and so she was going down to South Africa to give birth to our son, and I was going to follow just a couple days later, a week later in the car, and um, I was driving back that night to um, to our home, and um, there was a drunk man running under the road, and I just, there was, it was very dark. There's no, there's not a lot of where we, where I was in Akron, there's no electricity, and so it was just very dark. phone, and I looked at it, and I thought, what am I going to do? I don't have any numbers memorized. 
There's no 911. And so anyway, the IMD, again, because of your vision, we have what we call SafeCom, which is uh, an organization that helps us when we're in a major. Um, so it's, it's like our 911, essentially. And so anyway, I opened up my wallet. I'd walked away, and I opened up my wallet, and I found the SafeCom password. And again, only because of your vision that I was able to call for help that morning. And so I called for help. This guy had enough credit for me to call and say, hi, this is Jason. Call me back. And then it just went from there. And I sat there and just stared at the phone thinking, please call me back. You know, after a couple of minutes, they called me back. And um, I was able to, you know, tell them where I was at, what had happened. And within about two and a half hours, they had a text that another missionary had come to help me. And, um, and anyway, so he drove me to, back to where we had gone about four hours to the hospital. And um, I was able to get some what treated. They took a couple of x-rays and
So through that, through that crazy accident, that terrible experience, as I know so often said, I just want that night back. And um, the Lord has begun doing a work in this place by His hand, and we're beginning to see people come to faith in this place. And it was, I mean, it was just a terrible experience, but at the same time, the Lord has blessed it with more and more incredible love. And so, God, I just ultimately, I just want to say thank you to you because it is because of you and this church and your giving and the many other Southern Baptist churches that we're able to do what we do. We don't have to worry about raising funds. We don't have to worry about health care. We do not have to worry about vehicles. We do not have to worry about a house to live in. Because of your generosity, we are able to do what the Lord has called us to do. And we're able to serve it through finances. And so it is because of your generosity of this church and the Southern Baptist Convention that we're able to do that. And um, I just want to say thank you because it's, again, we believe so firmly. We have the greatest job in all of Nashville. We don't believe that there is a better job out there. We get to tell people about Jesus. Remember Sam and Mike. Sam and Mike are two guys that are struggling with baptism and are baptized. They said they're ready now. And uh, we're just praying that as we get back there, they're truly ready. And that they will
because this don't require it. Here it is. I put it right here right now. I want this always in the back. I want to put it right here. Okay? And so, again, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to just, so now, if anyone has any questions or anything you want to ask us,
anyway, um, anyway, this this guy, I've never, I've not met that guy since. It's not like he's come up to me and said, hey, I'm a missionary or whatever. But there's this guy that comes to our studies every week, and um, I told him, you know, I said, I'm convinced that my family can't, can't know for certain. I don't think he's ever going to come to me and say, hey, I don't know, I'm not going to LA or something.
so interesting because, you know, we all think of Islam and women not having any rights, which is true when you think about it in the religious standpoint. But in their culture, the women, it's a, uh, it's a matter of women or culture. And so the women are actually more important. Well, I wouldn't say more important, but they, they, have, they make a lot of the family decisions. And so it's an interesting combination when you get those two together because um, when it comes to religion, they are still very much not thought of. I mean, um, but then when you kind of separate religion a little bit and do their culture, um, the women have a lot of say. And so in the home they have say, in the mosque they have none. Um, and so, um, but because of that, um, it's really, I believe, because of the matrilineal culture that's making women so much because they're kind of viewed as the head of the home. Um, and so those, you know, as far as their religion goes, they might not be as devout Muslim like the men um, or have as good of an understanding of what they're really doing as the men. Um, the women are um, the head of the home because the women bring so much life that, you know, the head of the home may be missing. And so it's a, that's, that's what's happening with the women. So they have say in the home. They have no say in the mosque. There's certain groups. There's certain groups of women when she's around them, she'll wear a head cover. Um, but it's not mandatory in its content. It's more of just the way that they view you. I mean, they're not going to force us to wear one. But, you know, in most Muslim cultures, if you show your shoulders or whatever, you're considered an officer. And so we dress more the way that they dress just for the sake of not creating a greater gap. Um, you know, we're, we're some of the only white people in that world. And so... There's already a huge gap between us, you know, and uh, we know it, and they know it, and so we try to do a lot of things that just doesn't create too many great gaps. So we do, but uh, it's not mandatory. I would say um, we kind of have a rule set for how we present ourselves. Other questions? Definitely have had people, like I said, my um, one of our closest friends, his life was leaked from us. Um, his dad told you things he said that he was going to do um, if he didn't make the decision for Christ. His dad said, you're no longer one of us. And so there's definitely, there's definitely some persecution. It's not, we haven't seen any physical persecution, but there's definitely persecution in just the way that the, the community and the family respects your decision. And so... Like I said, the mosques, they go to these men's house regularly and try to convince them to come back and put a lot of pressure. In our community, death is, we see a lot of death um, in Africa because of AIDS, um, because of malaria, um, and malaria is very low. And so we, we, people in our community, I mean, we are continuous, probably weekly. I mean, it's just a very, very big part of where we live. And so death is just a part of life. But it is a huge part. We went to a funeral, sorry. We went to a funeral, and um, right before they buried the woman, they took her out and they bathed her. She was naked and they bathed her. And they said, you know, if she enters into the spirit world clean, then she'll come back and bless us because the other spirits will receive her. If she enters into the spirit world dirty, she'll come back and curse us because the 
And so death is huge today. They're always looking for death. And so um, so for uh, for them in this community, the biggest threat that they have is saying, when you die, no one will go after you. They just leave your body and just leave you. Um, and so for a lot of the believers, they understand that that's not a big deal anymore. God, we just thank you so much, Lord, that you are um, so good to us, Father, that you have given us life and life abundant in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have given us a new identity, Father, that we're no longer sinners. Um, Father, as people separated from your flesh, but through Christ, we are your children, and you love us and you care for us, Father. We thank you, Lord, that we have a beautiful message to share. And Father, we thank you that that message is for all people. Father, we just thank you. We're very grateful. We love you, Father, very much.